This is Retails, Conversations with Profit Protection, the podcast that talks direct with retailers about all things loss prevention. With your host, Nicole Smith. Did you know that the Profit Protection Future Forum is the only not-for-profit industry body promoting the interests of retail loss prevention professionals in Australia and New Zealand? Hi there and welcome to the show. Today I'm joined by Paul Banks from the Modular Analytics Company to talk about the evolution of loss prevention. Welcome to the podcast, Paul, and thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me on, Nicole, and uh, well done for saying our company name in one one take. That's brilliant. (laughs) Paul, everyone is talking about data, how to get it, how to navigate through it, how to interpret it. It can be overwhelming at times, especially if you've got limited resources. And I really like the philosophy of your company um, to generate, accelerate and modulate results. It kind of tells a story, I guess. So, Paul, can you tell me a bit about the company and um, how you work with different businesses around the world? Yeah, so it's it's a really interesting story and, and, and it kind of really aligns with with my own personal engines, which is why why I really enjoy working with the with the team. Um, so I guess um, to give a bit of background, a lot of the team have known each other for about 10, 12 years, um, worked together in the contact centre industry prim- primarily. Um, a lot of them were consultants in various different fields from like analytics to transformation um, and got to know each other kind of through the, through work, through mixing with each other and, and all kind of came together around a fr- common set of frustrations. And I think those frustrations for all the start in the contact center world kind of resonate out into a lot of other sectors and a lot of other um, industries. Um, so, yeah, they got to know each other and the, the, the frustrations were around sort of big consultancy pieces. So where, where data science and artificial intelligence came into things, um, they noticed that a lot of those projects kind of went on for, for months or even years. There's a lot of extra professional services that were being charged for that maybe weren't absolutely necessary. Um, and as a result of it, you kind of got towards the end of that project and found that actually you couldn't demonstrate a strong return on investment for the business. And it was really hard to prove that. And for all the business had made moves forward, there was a lot of money that had been invested to get there. Um, so the guys set out to change that narrative um, and originally set out as like a data science consultancy. Um, they wanted to deploy things really fast, uh, do things at an affordable price that meant smaller businesses could afford the technology. And then realized that actually what got in the way of a lot of that was that the fact that they were having to use third party software to get there. So they brought that third party software development in house. Um, we develop all our own software. Um, we've now moved towards more of a software as a service model, so SaaS model. Um, and it works really well for the business. So, you know, we, we, we target small to medium enterprises as our prime customers because we want to be able to give them access to technology that, that other businesses couldn't get um, couldn't get access to traditionally. Um, but the, the knock-on effect of that is because when you scale that up, then big enterprise business are actually really interested in that because it saves them a lot on the bottom line as well. Yeah, we very much set out to change the world in terms of the, the view of data science and how AI in particular is looked on and make it more accessible to people and bring it to the masses. So the business started, what, three years ago, 2018? Yeah, three years ago, we, we set out officially. Um, I think still as of March 2020, we still only officially had two employees. We had a team of associates who were kind of working on things piecemeal. 
Um, and as a business, we took the decision during lockdown to do the right thing by, by a lot of the associates and bring them on board on full-time contracts and really start to make our mark on the world during that time in the pandemic when a lot of other businesses, I guess, were holding back. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, what, how, what happened during the pandemic for you guys? Um, so, hands on heart, I joined in the July of last year. Um, so, right in, the, right in the peak of the pandemic for us here in the UK. Um, I'd kind of gone through a bit of a transition at work and realised that my personal values didn't really align to where I was sat. I was looking for a new career and just happened to be talking to um, Jimmy, who's now my CEO. And we really sort of hooked up on a personal level. There was this magnetic resonance between us. We really got each other. We understood each other. And I took a bit of a bit of a leap of faith and, and moved out of an industry I'd worked in 15 years to come on board with TMAC, uh, the modular analytics company, as a as an SME for retail. Mm-hmm. We really wanted to see what sort of impact we could make on retail. Um, turns out probably wasn't the greatest time to, to move over to retail and try something new because obviously everybody's a little bit risk averse in retail to start with um, in terms of sharing their data and, and making those moves. And I think the, the pandemic really sort of concreted that position. There's a lot of interest out there, but um, there's, there's very limited in terms of who would be willing to commit during that pandemic. So it's been very interesting. There's been a lot of um, business pivots um, for all of us and a very big learning experience. It's uh, some exciting time's coming up over the next year or two, I think, as things start to really open back up again. Why do you think retailers don't like to share the data? I think it's probably the same in a lot of different industries, and and it goes back to why the business started in the first place, is that they've probably been stung too many times. Um, There's too many horror stories out there, especially here in the UK. I mean, I don't know what what the data protection regulations are like there in Australia, but here in the UK with GDPR and data protection, it's, it's almost become a stick to hit people with as opposed to being a, a way of sort of um, preventing data breaches and, and securing things. Um, and in that respect, it's become very hard to get hold of that, that data for um, any business. I think retail is probably a little bit more protective of their data because they, at a, at a primal level, understand the value of that data and how it could be sort of uh, taken out of their hands and monetized without their own sort of um their own market and spin on things. So it's it's very relevant that they keep hold of that data and the right to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got to be very careful what they do with the data. But at the same time, I think now is the time that, that the adventurous guys, that the guys that are being very creative and ingenious with their data are uh, starting to take some of those risks and that'll start to pay dividends for them. Absolutely. So I wanted to talk to you about a LinkedIn post that you made sort of 10 to 12 months ago about the evolution of loss prevention. Um, can you talk me through it? How did it come about? I'd so in my former life, um, I did a lot of loss prevention um, for the for the retailer that I worked for. Um, we were we were pretty successful. We had a lot of success on a, on a regional level and on a national level. Um, we managed to cut a lot of the internal theft and fraud down. We were having significant impact on the external theft and fraud. Um, but then, as as with a lot of sort of retail industries, you know that that success then breeds a, um, almost a concern around the spend on the on the roles in that department, and it you know it got cut back. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the team moved back to stores to other roles, and that really impacted on me. And and and, and as I saw it, you know, at the time we said, you know, like guys, like you're cutting your nose off to spite your face. You know, six months time, this is going to come back and it's going to bite you. 
Um, and we watched it happen internally. We watched it happen. Um, and that's a really siloed business. So I, I had, at that point, I had no contact with the outside world, really. We didn't, we didn't speak with other retailers. We didn't really speak with other teams in the, in, the, in the retailer. And so as part of the role that I came out to do for TMAC, we moved out in July. And, and I spent predominantly the next six to nine months networking with other loss prevention um, experts. And I realized that my own experiences were no different to anybody else's. And you know, the whole industry just went round and round in circles. Yep. Um, and so that really struck a chord with me in terms of, you know, how can a, how can retail, which is traditionally like it, it's so forward thinking in terms of technology and at the edge of technology, yet they're one department that kind of holds the majority of data that they could get so much value out of. How can they turn that into a cyclic spin where, you know, you're constantly losing that experience and knowledge from your teams by reducing the size of the team, furloughing people, um, reducing their hours and, and, and sort of almost cutting off that avenue where they could extract so much value and information from. And I get it, you know, it's a cost to save a cost for a lot of retailers and, and I do understand the, the decisions behind that. But I think now is a time where those retailers can start to look beyond that and actually see loss prevention teams as being a way to start making money. I guess that's that's the the, the basis of profit protection, right? It's how can we how can we leverage that to not just look at loss, but how can we start to improve our profit as a result of those actions? Um, and I just wanted to give something back to the people that kind of felt that pain. I think a, a lot of people feel that pain, but they're unwilling to speak out to their retail senior leaders to, to tell them that they see this cycle happening over and over again. I'm very fortunate that I'm in that position where, you know, I'm not really beholden to anyone and I can, I can voice those thoughts without any real repercussions from anyone. Um, it really does go in circles though. I mean, we, we see it here quite often where uh, loss prevention might put a solution in place and then more often than not, the retailer brings in people from overseas mostly from um, the UK or Europe, and they come in and they go, oh, no, no, we don't do that uh, in the UK or Europe, so you've got to do it differently. So we've got to open up our entrances. We don't want to close them up. We've got to open them up. And then they go for four or five years, and then suddenly the losses are so bad that they go, oh, actually, now we've got to put everything back in place. We've got to put our Wanzel gates back in. We've got to put EAS gates back in, you know, all this stuff. And it really does happen, I want to say, sort of every five to six years, we can see it happening, which is, it's it's kind of, not funny, but it's kind of, uh, well, I don't even know how to describe it. I can almost, I feel like I, that I could say that to the retailer to go, you know that you're going to change this in five or six years' time, don't you? <laughs> yeah, and, and and the frustrating thing for them is that they, they, the guys that are making those decisions, who are, who are responsible in those positions, they kind of probably already know about themselves. Um, and, and they're probably the first guys to admit that, they, that that's the case for the industry. Um, and I think that's why, you know, bringing data science and, and scientific principles in general to loss prevention is so important because... Without that data, without that understanding, without that log of what we've done before, what's come previously and where we're going, then how can you start to move the industry forward? You know, and when I talk about this evolution of loss prevention, you know, years ago you started with security teams that were at the front door and they didn't really have any access. You know, they were all about apprehension of, of shoplifters or, or, or internal theft. Then you start to get data into the system and some of those guys move forward into, into being loss prevention 
partners. So they start to understand the data. They understood how it could lead them to catch internal theft or external theft and how they could impact on that in a, in a fairly limited way. But, you know, some of those guys do that in a really, really clever way. Um, now retail's at this turning point where there's so much data that people are absolutely flooded with it. And it's almost that like people don't know what to do with that anymore. Mm. Um, it's impossible to process all of that data as one person. I was going, but often they don't have a person that is that is their job is just to look at that, particularly in a loss prevention department. So they might have other analysts who do that, but they might be analysing the data for you know marketing or sales or finance, whoever it may be. But that what I find here is there's very few, I guess, loss prevention analysts who can sit and look at the data. And of course, in this day and age. Everything is data-driven. So whether it be your CCTV cameras, whether it be your EAS systems, whether it be your alarm systems, it's all how can we get the data out of there so that we can provide a solution or a range of solutions for you to choose from to to make a difference within your business. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point, and and I think that you know I don't think that's limited just to retail. So you know we speak with a lot of businesses, big enterprise businesses that that have the same sort of problems, no matter which level they're at. Um, you've got a set of analysts within the business, and and they're there for a valid reason, but ultimately they're torn between multiple teams and multiple departments. Mm. And the 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 unfortunate knock on effect of that is that the the departments with the biggest pull and the biggest budget are going to be the guys that get the most time from those analysts. Well, um, and or that's is it, why businesses sorry. Sorry, is it or is it more that it's the person who screams the loudest? Potentially. Yeah, <laughs> potentially. I think I, I think there's an unfortunate situation where loss prevention is almost seen as, as the poor cousin. Um, they're the guys that, that almost get left to, to the last pickings on, on those sorts of projects. You know, if there's a, if there's a set of projects in place, loss prevention teams have traditionally been very used to just Picking up the de- picking up the pieces and dealing with it themselves, and they're not used to being um, supported on mass throughout the business. I would say you know it comes in ebbs and waves to what we spoke about before. You know, some some t- some years you'll you'll have some money put into the budget, and, and all of a sudden everything will get refreshed and renewed, and then for two three years there's a drought, and, and nobody wants to know anymore. Well, we gave you money two years ago, like guys, just 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 get on with things. So I think they they they're more or less used to doing that and and reluctant to ask for more from the business, um, and that's where I see sort of. The profit protection side of things going when I talk about the evolution into profit protection, I think that's that's the valid difference is that the guys that are capable of building a business case for the loss prevention team in terms of not just what's being stolen, but how they can positively impact the business without any extra resources, without any extra budget, but just demonstrating how they really impact on that business um, in a positive way at the top line as well as the bottom line. They're the guys that are having real traction right now and moving the system forward. Um, and, and when I talk about you know loss prevention is the new market, and you know, I'm, I'm being a little bit ironic, um, but really the, the value of the data that loss prevention teams have in this modern day and age can be so useful for the business. And, and a lot of the business, I don't even think a lot of the business functions even realize the value of the data that, that the loss prevention teams have control of. And, and not because they asked for that data in the first place, but because they were given it because nobody else really wanted control of CCTV. They didn't want control of the till receipt system, you know, the EPOS. They, they, they were more or less forced on that. Um, but the irony of that is that now they've got access to all that data and, and the teams that can tie all that together can really start to move things forward for their business. I find um, loss prevention is also the new sales too. 
because rather than talk about loss, because look, at the end of the day, no one wants to talk about loss. No one wants to talk about shrinkage. You know, it's everyone wants to talk about sales, particularly you know, within the last 18 months, it's how can we sell it? What can we sell? What sort of margin are we getting? So if you're delivering, if you can deliver a solution that increases sales rather than just stops loss or reduces loss, it's a much easier conversation to have. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I think it goes back to getting the buy-in from the business. So those loss prevention guys who are capable of doing that and who are capable of talking that talk, it's, you know, they don't have to do anything different with their job. They're already doing it. Most people are doing that as part of their job. They don't recognize that they're doing it. They don't recognize the value that that gives the rest of the business. So getting the buy-in from the rest of the business and saying, look, guys, you know, this, this week, this month, this year, we've, we've added this value to the business. Now people are going to start listening to what you're saying because they want to hear it because you're talking their language. So they almost have to be, they're almost selling themselves or selling loss prevention to the rest of the business. Yeah. And that's uncomfortable for a lot of people. Yeah. That's something they're not used to doing. No, because, and you're right, you know, I guess that's why they're the new marketing because that's what they have to do. I find, and I don't, I don't know what it's like in the UK, but I find that um, loss prevention aren't as close to the senior people as what they used to be maybe 10, 15 years ago. And so for them to get their voice out there, they almost do have to market themselves or the the loss prevention department to go, hey, guys, we're here. You know, we've got some great things going on. And they almost need their own um, marketing person who can uh, send that in internal information out to the rest of the business to say, well, you know what, yeah, we are a cost to the business, but we are actually helping the business make money by putting money back onto the bottom line. Yeah, I think I think in every business, in every retailer that I've spoken to, there is at least one person who want to champion the cause for loss prevention, who want to move things forward. I don't think there's there's any business out there that, you know, the, the, the loss prevention team don't see the value of what they've got. A lot of them struggle to express it. Um, mm. A lot of them struggle to understand the data properly. Um, understand how all the data links together. And I think that's the key for me is that the same data that proves um, where the losses were can also be flipped on its head to show where the gains have been and how you've how you've assisted in that way. And I think the guys that are starting to move forward with that are, are really appreciating that. And again, you know, that, that comes back to how we want to help retailers in terms of, you know, we don't want, you know, it, in any industry that we go into, we don't want you to have to employ a team of analysts to understand what it is that we do. We want to, you know, we start with a solution, a challenge that, that that we've identified in the market. You know, we're not we're not coming up with great ideas and we're going to go and sell this product to people. What we do is listen to people in the market. We listen to the experts there, find out what their problems and challenges are, build a solution around that, give that to the data science team. And, and let them build something that's really creative, something out of the box that, that really changes the way people look at things. But then we also acknowledge that um, data doesn't translate very well to people. Um, people don't get data a lot of the time unless you're data-minded. So we then run that through behavioral science and behavioral design to come out with a product on the other end that your average Joe can understand. You can just pick up and use with very little training and understand how to use that. And we do that in big contact centers. We do that in retail, you know, no matter which industry we're in, that is our goal is to give that power to the people who traditionally 
want the want the information but can't get access to it themselves and relying on other people who are time poor to, to, to deliver that information for them. And I really do think the difficult part is understanding that data. Because, look, I'm not a data person. If someone, when someone puts a, a spreadsheet in front of me and there's, you know, thousands of columns, I, you know, I get bored within seconds. So yeah. I, th- I, th- I think that, um, and what I was going to ask you was, why is data so important to a business? Because for me, it almost takes the emotion out of the decision-making process because we all sit there and go, uh, if there's a decision that needs to be made, people become very passionate about it. If you just show the pure data to make the decision, then that decision-making process becomes a lot easier and a lot quicker, in my opinion. I don't know if that's the same for you. Yeah, it does. It does. But we're also big, big proponents that the data should lead people. Um, But, you know, it's not the be all and end all. And and I would still encourage people, you know, regardless of what the data shows, ultimately, if you strongly believe enough that, that something should be a different way to what the data is showing you, then absolutely give it a go in a controlled environment in a way that you can replicate and you can understand why if it does fall down, why it's fallen down or why if it's been successful, it's been successful. Um, and I think too many people blindly follow data and technology and, and we're big believers, that, you know, for all we're a data science business, we're, we're there to help people make better decisions. Um, we're not there to make the decisions for them. Mm-hmm. We can give you options and we can tell you what the best options are. Brilliant. But then you go away and make the decisions from that. And I think until people come to that understanding and, and stop throwing around words like AI, like it's like it's monopoly money, you know, AI is a very specific set of technology. It's not everything that people put out there, but a lot of people attach it to things to make it sound more valuable or like they've made a better decision. Um, but ultimately, a lot of it's just data science and machine learning. Um, and I think once you understand that, that that's there to support you and not remove you from the role, then it becomes so much more powerful. Yeah, absolutely. So how then can loss prevention turn a dashboard into a decision? I think that the importance of, of, of decisions, again, like to go back to what we just said, it, it's important that the decision remains with a human because if you ask a computer or an AI or, or whatever to make a decision, um, it might make the right one, but it's it's always based on the data that's got in front of it. And that, that data, to your point, is unemotional. It doesn't have experience. It doesn't have a, a great deal of judgment, and it relies on how it was programmed in the first place. <laughs> so if you're asking um, a a dashboard to make a business critical decision all on its own, then you're running a very risky game. So I think the important thing for um, uh, real analytics to do is to offer um, a selection of decisions that are possible to be made or to have been part of um, a very tried and tested process to get from A to B in the first place with that retailer. So they've got to understand their processes fully before you can implement decision making on top of that because otherwise you build in uh, a castle on sand you yeah. know you, 
you, you run the risk of your foundations crumbling at any moment because if you haven't understood that customer journey, understood that that asset journey or the underpinning principles and procedures that go before that, then how can you hope to to get a piece of technology to do that without any interruption or any interaction from it from a user? So I think that's that's critical. And then once you've got to that point, um, understanding how that decision making works by somebody within the business, because you know if that if that system's now you know as, as things evolve, um, retail moves really fast. Um, but the AI or the or the or the, the, the dashboard and the retail analytics is going to continue doing what it's always done. It's been what it's trained to do. So unless that's continually remodeled or updated, then you still run the risk of one year down the line being in the same shoes you're in right now and, and, and the AI making the wrong decision or or informing you in the wrong way. So for, for people that haven't worked with AI or, or, or done this type of um, analytics before, how do you get them to trust the data? For us, um, we're a big believer in the in the fail fast approach. So we know that that, that most deployments are going to go wrong at some point, mm-hmm. and we'd rather they went wrong in a in a controlled environment where we know it's going to happen. Um, so I think it was Winston Churchill said, you know, no no um, no plan ever made. Oh, sorry, no plan ever made survived contact with the enemy. Right. So you can have the best made plan in the world, but ultimately. Once you deploy that in a real life environment, it's you know you could it'll probably fall over. So our philosophy is to do that really fast and really quickly, and, and to be open and transparent about it, and say, look, you know, we're going to deploy this. Here's what we think is going to happen. Anything might happen with it. We're going to do it in a controlled way. It's not going to impact on your business. We'll understand how that happens, and then together we'll move forward from there. And I think that transparency with with your partner really starts to build that. Um, that trust up and that honesty up where you've got a relationship and for us it's about having skin in the game as well so we we often tie ourselves to the the metrics that we're trying to help the retailer or the or the partner improve um, and unless you're willing to do that how can you say that you really back yourself as a business you know we've got to have a vested interest in you guys doing well yeah. um, and it's amazing that the power that that creates within the relationship yeah absolutely um Paul, what other tools do you have in the toolkit? In terms of the more the wider world or within retail or? Probably within retail. Within retail. So, yeah, we're, we're still in a very early stage with the retail market. It's been an interesting journey over the last year. Um, I definitely think that there's a, there's a future for um, a more advanced data science and AI around sort of e-commerce fraud analytics and linking that into an omni-channel environment. Um, there's definitely a lot of interest around the, like the stores of the future and bringing, um, you know, uh, the, the, there's already a lot of pilots in place in terms of, you know, we've got fantastic RFID AES systems set up, you know, tagging various departments within the, within the, off, within the retail environment, the warehouse environment. But for me, where that now needs to go is the so what on the end of that. Like, you know, you can have all that information. That's great. But how do you use um, previous data and current information and what you know about the market to predict what's going to happen next? And that's really where the where the keys are for a lot of businesses is turning that prescriptive um, decision-making into predictive decision-making. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we're quite there yet. I don't think any business is quite there yet, but it's a lot closer than it ever used to be. And I think for us, um, one of one of our other projects at the moment is around range rationalization and bringing together um, supply chain data with loss prevention data. Because they're two 
business functions that are very siloed off from each other and often make decisions very separately to each other to each other's frustration and so for me like let's bring that together like let's bring both those functions together and make it as one so they can both see how each other are making decisions and everybody's accountable um you know there's no hiding behind a, a marketing decision there's no hiding behind a a, a brand bonus for for deploying a product um, everything's open and transparent and again it goes back to what i said before if you've got that transparent relationship and nobody can hide data won't let you hide behind anything yeah absolutely well we have reached the final countdown your last three questions so firstly what were the positives that came out of lockdown 2020 for you <sighs> it's it's hard to talk about isn't it um because it, i often it get ptsd from it <laughs> yeah, it, it almost feels wrong to, to, to talk about positives coming out of that year. Um, but, you know, I, absolutely for me, I think it was the recognition that, that where I was working at no longer fit with my personal values and the the fortunate decision to, to, to jump ship um to to a business that i've not done before you know i sat in september we had our only meeting where i've met the rest of my team that have been working for the last year um we sat there and i looked at my ceo and i said you know guys i'm doing a job that i didn't really apply for i'm working for a team that i've never met until today for a, for a job that we don't really know what it is right now um and it was just so exciting and and for me you know i've, I've spent the last year learning so much about um, the outside world from where I was that, that, you know, I feel so much more confident and, and it's been really positive. I feel like I've helped a lot of people in the last year, which is, which is, you know, it helps me sleep at night. Oh, that's um, good. So yeah. Like I think that's been really, really powerful for me. That's awesome. What new talent did you acquire during lockdown 2020? New talent. <sighs> You know, I, w- I would, I wouldn't go as far as to call myself a, a, like I had a talent, <laughs> but um, I think storytelling, which is ah. which is a really weird thing to say. So, because I've spent so much time on on Zoom and Teams and and all the different platforms, introducing myself to complete strangers, um, I felt really, really exposed when I first started that conversation it was like how do you introduce yourself um and you've got you know you've got imposter syndrome playing on one side and you've got confidence issues on the other side and and, and I guess it just started like you know I started really small really short build up the story here's who I am today here's a couple of things that I've done and and every time I spoke to somebody I'd had something else on and saw whether that worked for them and whether it engaged them or not um combined with probably spending most of the last year um, not being able to go out and, and probably read into my son. <laughs> so, <laughs> not, not that I'm borrowing from fairy tales to tell my own story. <laughs> but, but, uh, but yeah, I think um, storytelling can add so much to um, what we do in business. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of good books out there. There's a lot of, you know, when you talk about books, like how, you, how people do TED talks and things like that, they, they all fascinate me as to how you can get your information across. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, it's been a learning curve. I look, I, I do the same thing. Every time I go into a store and they tell me something, it's just another one that goes, another story that I can use when I'm talking to a different retailer to say, well, you know, you think this is happening just to you. I've spoken to another retailer. They've got the same problem and I can tell that story. So I think, um, I think that happens a lot in life, especially, especially in this world that we live in at the moment. 
Um, and lastly, what do you anticipate will happen with data analytics in 2021 and beyond, more importantly? It's interesting because I think that the market's starting to mature just that little bit more than where it has been. And I think it's probably been driven by the pandemic even faster than what it was. Um, when you look at, you know, we, we've got some technology that's very similar to um, the, the, what, what Gong.io use. And, and to see their valuation on the stock market at, at eight and a half billion this year gone, um, you know, as a six-year-old business, that's phenomenal. So I think... You know, when you when you talk about voice of the customer, you know, speech analytics this year is going to be the, the biggest thing for voice of the customer across the world. Um, so, you know, we, t we tend to talk about retailers in the physical operations and store environment, but actually in terms of the customer services and contact center side of things, um, really connecting what's going on in store what's going on in the supply chain and what's happening in the customer services team in a really on the channel way um, is going to give so much more power to the retailers um, and, and a lot of businesses across the world, to be fair. Um, you know, we're using sort of AI and coaching. Um, we're using data science to help people have better conversations around coaching, not just in a contact center environment, but in logistics and supply chain. Um, it's a really exciting world to be part of right now. Yeah, there, there is so much going on and every every solution has data at the moment. It doesn't matter in this loss prevention world that, that we're talking about, every solution has data and it's just a matter of being able to extract that data and get and, and use that information and that data to to help the business. That's right. And, and I think there's, there's probably a lot of... Um, there's a lot of businesses out there that when they when they were asked to come in and, and make that sort of um, analytics for a, a, a partner or a customer, they tend to lock that data down um, and prevent access to it. Whereas we kind of we're of the opposite mentality that like if it's created through your, you know, if, if we're using your data to create something for you, then you should have access to the whole thing. So we kind of open up our um our whole data set that we use to to work with retailers you know if you want to examine what's being done um aside from the ip that we own ourselves for our own translation and, and uh, analytics but you know if it's been created through your platform then you should have access to that so i think that is probably going to be the way forward for the, for the next couple of years and to, you know, we talked about building trust yep. i think that's absolutely where it needs to go yeah, and it's that transparency again. Um, Paul, thanks so much for your time today. Uh, I think the more people that under can, the more, sorry, ugh. Paul, thanks for your time today. I think the more that people can articulate their challenges and engage with companies like the Modular Analytics Company to understand their data, better decisions will be made by businesses. So if you'd like to get in touch with Paul, you can find him on LinkedIn or you can email him at paul.b at tmac.ai and we'll put Paul's contact details in the show notes. You can subscribe to this weekly podcast via iTunes, Google Podcasts and Spotify and there's a link to download episode and show notes on the PPFF website. This podcast is proudly brought to you by the Profit Protection Future Forum. It is written by myself, Nicole Smith and produced by Nicholas Lauby. We'll be back next week to keep talking all things profit protection. Thanks for listening to Retails, conversations with profit protection. If you like what you hear, make sure you subscribe via iTunes, Google Podcasts or Spotify. If you want to find out more about the Profit Protection Future Forum, head to ProfitProtection.co or find us on LinkedIn. Drop us a message on info at ProfitProtection.co with feedback on our show. 